0: The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Master Dogen taught from top to bottom. The ongoing practice period is Buddha ancestors. It covers everything without an inch of land or a speck of earth left out. The practice period is an anchoring peg that is neither new nor old, has never arrived, will never leave. It's the size of your fist and takes the form of grabbing you by the nose. When the practice period is opened, the empty sky cracks apart and all of space is dissolved. When the practice period is closed, The earth explodes, leaving no place undisturbed. An anchoring peg. (laughs) You know, if someone asked you, what is it that makes this, this? What would you say? What would you point to? Different aspects of training, the Sangha, the mountain, the building, Sashin, Ango. But none of those things, in and of themselves, or even together, really are what this is. Somehow it's all of that and something more. You know, I mentioned, I think, recently to think about, maybe it was earlier this week, to think about the Buddha, his enlightenment, and then deciding to teach. And and not just teach the Dharma, which was extraordinary enough, but how to form a Sangha, how to do that thing. And then to having set it into motion, how to keep it alive. You know, if you set a ball rolling, it'll roll for a while, but then it slows down and stops. And it's said that even in some of the sutras, the Buddha points to how in his later years, he felt that already things were changing, that he saw in some of the newer monastics coming in, not quite the same Something, <laughs> And so, you know, it's, I mean, extraordinary enough to begin with the Great Enlightenment and then to assemble, constitute, put together a, a, a body of teachings, a way of practicing, but then to not just maintain that, but to develop that. You know, this saying that the student should surpass the teacher. You know, I don't understand that as necessarily being, you know, more clear, more developed, although if they are, wonderful. But rather that there's, because the inclination is to degrade, that there has to be this effort to, to do more. you know the sort of the you know when there's not a lot of meat on the bone you savor every morsel right and when the bone is fat and there're many bones then we can get a little you know complacent and so that's one of the really important vitally important aspects i would say of training, of of doing this. And that each of us really has a very important role. First and foremost, just our own individual practice. And that doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean always one thing. But it means moving forward to not waver, as one of the slogans said. And when we waver, to come back. And to do that for ourselves, but to recognize that when we are part of something larger, we're part of a Sangha, then we're influencing other people. That's, we become, that becomes our contribution, in part. And so, thinking of Ango, we do this twice a year. Sessions. we do it every month. And so it would be not hard for those to become very sort of rote, and automatic, and just roll it out. And so, there's a lot of effort amongst those who care, which is many of you, (laughs) who are responsible for making this happen, to, to not do that. To do it again for the first time. To do it again, because we may not do it again after this. And so to think of the training of a Chief Disciple going through this three months of training, this period of training, very visible, very public in a certain way, and at the same time very private. Right? Nobody really knows what's going on inside over here. <laughs> or in here, right? for that matter. And so each Shuso is going through their own ongoing world. And that the Shuzahosen, because there's a lot of ceremony, right? I mean, it's one of the most elaborate things we do. That we can get caught up in the ceremony. The ceremony is to bring attention and emphasis and, you know, a certain majesty to it. But that the heart of it is the same thing that we do every day. It's training. And so giving a first talk, doing a Dharma encounter, that's why we're not going to live stream it tomorrow. But it's only going to be open to people who who are ongoing participants because, you know, I've been thinking about this, we've been discussing this, the context of what this all is and what happens tomorrow is so particular. And that so many just jumping in without that We'll get something, you know, and quite possibly something good. But I feel that, you know, as we have opened the door with the pandemic and sort of kept that door open in many ways, that there are some things that have always been like this and kind of need to be. And so we open the door a little bit, for those who have been doing the ongoing because you've been practicing within that context. But And so within all the ceremony to really appreciate, this is not a performance, right? It's live. For some, more live than... <laughs> 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 you might imagine. And there's, the, you know, the. it's like putting a lot of these slogans right there on the mat, right? Like, okay, we're doing this. This is what we're doing. This is how we do this. So not necessarily apropos of all that, the next slogan I want to speak about is, don't wallow in (laughs) self-pity. It just worked out that way. (laughs) Or don't expect gratitude, another translation. Judy Leaves says, why not just live a normal life and forget about all this? I mean, really, why take on this extra burden of training, cultivating loving kindness? When you enter into practice you realize, you know, mindfulness practice is hard. Training is hard. Practicing compassion is hard. Even developing kindness is hard. It's challenging and painful to care about all of this. So you begin to speculate about how easy other people have it. You think about how great it would be if you could just go about your life without this It would be such a relief to forget about trying to wake up, uncover deception, practice kindness, help others, all the rest. The problem is, once you begin to see things more clearly, it's kind of difficult to turn all that off. You're ruined. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm imagining that all or most of us have had such moments. You know, why can't I just go home, you know, put on some music, turn on TV, and just forget about all this. And what did you think? Right? What came to your mind? What did you see? Because you already know that. You know know that. We all know that. And what would going back mean? Where would you go? You know, people come into training. I mean, that's just a normal thing. We begin things, and we... Make commitments. We don't always follow them through. So people stop practicing, stop sitting, stop studying Dharma, leave training. And what happens to all of whatever has happened in them, for them, to them? It's all there, right? It doesn't just disappear. A life has been changed to some degree, right? But what happens to our inner unrest, our dissatisfaction. How do we just go back and forget about all that? We practice for ourselves and others. In a way, other people aren't really asking us to do this. Sometimes they're asking us not to do this, (laughs) depending on who you hang out with. If you're lucky, maybe sometimes they are asking you to do this. It's time for you to go to (laughs) Sichuan. But we shouldn't expect recognition, approval, appreciation, you know, some uh, important currency of normal culture, but practice for the sake of practicing. We serve to serve. We cultivate compassion to cultivate compassion right? You're not doing this for the big salary, for the excellent hours, right? (laughs) For your own private bathroom. (laughs) We really need to be doing this for this, for this itself. Trayla Kyabgon says, whether somebody acknowledges our actions or not should not be our concern. Just commit to doing things to the best of your ability and in as thorough a manner as possible without sloppiness. Don't think that people are indebted to you for this. We should simply do things because we love them. Because we love our lives. Because we love the world. We can do things just to do them. That's one mind. We can do things because we love them. That's another mind. He says, don't be sloppy. What I? Why the attention to detail? What's the deal with that? What is sloppiness? What's going on there, right, when we do something in a way that's sloppy? What's the state of mind that we're in? Where is our attention? What matters in that moment? Are we actually touching what we're touching? Do we see the effect of our action? Do we care about the things that we're touching, whether it's a pair of shoes or a hammer? or a kitchen knife, or a toilet scrubber, or an altar. That moment, those moments, that's our life. That's it. You know, if we throw away... I remember reading an article many years ago <clears throat> with, um people who were, you know, in sort of high-tech, high-end, you know, Ventures, and were very young and wanted to make lots and lots of money and then retire, you know, at an early age. But to do that, they were going to have to work like a crazy person for some measure of time. And the article was saying, what makes you think that when you retire, you'll know what to do with yourself, that you'll know how to be in that part of your life that you've worked so hard for when you haven't trained for that? haven't allowed yourself that space and time. And so when we divide our lives up into what's worth, worthy of attention and meticulousness and what's not, what makes us think that we can truly be meticulous if we're not practicing that? To not expect gratitude and to really see how this frees us because when we're expecting gratitude, then we're looking for that, we're practicing for that. And to see how without that limitation, there's just practice. Practice is not an agreement, right? We're not, you don't have a bargain going with the Dharma. You may have a bargain going. <laughs> <laughs> I remember years ago, when, when we were getting started in the prison work, talking to another monk from another center who was getting into it and was totally into it. It was like he wanted to make it his whole life. And the rest of his life really started to come apart because he was so devoted. And I said, your life's coming apart. And he said, the Dharma will take care of me because I'm, I'm doing this bodhisattva work. I said, what do you think the Dharma is? Does it have a bank account? His life fell apart. But he was convinced that he was doing, and he was doing a good thing. He was doing an excellent world of things, but also expecting some gratitude. The world is not against us, but it's not working on our behalf either. In Buddhism, there's no cosmic consciousness running things, planning things, when it's difficult, of course it's good to be able to ask for help, but not to expect that that help is going to save us, that it's going to do what we ourselves need to do. And that's one of the things about training is everybody that comes into training is trusted, right? That's part of the whole process, right, of applying for session applying for residency, for student, is. Is we don't really speak of it that way, but it's like to, to that the person is sufficiently self-sufficient that they can be trusted to themselves. In a way, to be left alone while training, while in the midst of the Sangha, while sitting cheek to jowl. That you can be trusted to be alone, left to yourself that you know how to be in solitude, and if that's difficult, then work on that. You know how to be with other people. If that's difficult, then work on that. To not be jealous, the next slogan, don't be jealous. Judah says, this doesn't mean you shouldn't notice that some people have more than you do, money, power, ability, friends, Realization, intelligence, creativity, teachings. But the idea is to keep the clarity of your observations, but not let it tailspin into fits of jealousy and envy. She says, jealousy can be a real cop-out. It gives you a good excuse not to relate to your own situation. It's an interesting point. Right? Jealousy is a cop-out. When we're concerned, we get obsessed over what we don't have, somebody else has more. What are we, what are we avoiding? What are we distracting ourselves from? We get fooled into thinking, if I just had more of that. When these strong emotions come up and they're not examined, we're not practicing them, then they very easily, we very easily within them turn away. We turn away from what's actually important and very often to get distracted with the object that seems to have roused the emotion. So that's an aspect of mindfulness, is holding our attention, to hold our attention on the object at hand, and not get distracted, not cop out, as she says. Because when we turn away, we're turning away from the place a practice of change, of transformation, of insight. And whatever happens when we turn away, well, we already know that, right? That's not really new. When we turn the light around and reflect deeply within ourselves, then our, our, our awareness illuminates, makes more vivid, brings closer, our study. And that's very interesting, what can happen there. Because we can actually get, we can kind of get entrenched in that. We can get caught in that, because it's closure, because it's more um, vivid. Which means we're losing, actually, our mindfulness. We're getting caught again. We're grasping again. Or, we can untie the knot. And in the same way we can become, as we become more attuned and keen to what's going on within us, We, we can become more attuned and keen to what's going on for others, and not get so caught up in whatever is fastest or loudest. That also can go in different directions. We can become more judgmental, less kind, more jealous, so, these other slogans to not ponder others, to not talk about injured limbs, to work with your own greatest defilements first, mind your own business. It's important to be able to be inspired by each other. I mean, what a loss if we were in the midst of all of this wealth of humanity and practice, and sincerity, and all these wonderful virtues and examples. Like, because we can learn from all kinds of examples, right? Obviously, we can learn from very positive, good examples, but we can learn from negative examples, too. When I was young, you know, I learned a lot from the people around me, peers, elders, by their examples and thinking, I don't really want to go that way. That doesn't seem to be working. So what a loss it would be to not benefit from the wealth the more that that our friends in the Sangha have because of jealousy. Free of that, then we can really appreciate and be inspired You know, Jisho talked about, by the way, she's okay. She's just taken a while for her to get back from the hospital, but she's okay. Um, She talked about competitiveness. And, you know, pretty much whatever our strategies have been in life before practice become the strategies we use in practice until they stop working. And usually it takes that. Usually we have to wait until they stop working. And stop working doesn't mean they just sort of one day run out of gas and just die on the side of the road. They stop working by causing more and more trouble within us. It's not a, it's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. That what seems to have been working all along gets more and more in the way. is causing more distress. And then we really have to kind of choose, you know. Are we going to give that up? What are we going to trust? And so it's not a contest or competition. You know, you're not losing. No matter what happens in the Dharma, you can't lose. right? That's sort of not, not in the, 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 the book of rules. <laughs> you know? I mean, think about all the things that we bring to the Dharma, all the ideas and beliefs that are really based in, you know, the competitive, merciless, you know, world of samsara, that we just apply this and think they're true and we have to abide by them and that's how things work and that's how this is going to work. Or we just make up our own rules. And so it's not possible to lose and you don't have to win because that's not really possible either. It's not about that. And to the degrees that it continues to be about that, and it does, right? we're going to suffer. So that is a sign, right? Whenever there's distress, whenever there's unrest, that's a sign. We're being called. Hello? Notice this. To not be frivolous, the next slogan. Pema says, don't waste your precious time. You don't know how long you have. And this is a a teaching that runs all the way through and all the way back. Do not waste your precious time. Time is precious when the life being lived is precious. And the teaching about regarding this precious life, that life is sacred, it is a wonder, it's a miracle, it is a gift. In Buddhism, it's precious when we practice. Because then we we enter into the the house of the Buddha, where this the full potential of what this life can be and what we already are can be discovered. That's what makes it truly precious. And so the teaching is, what she's saying is, don't waste that. Because we don't know how long we have. You know, Deva says, if we don't practice well when everything is going and, you know, when the conditions are right, what makes us think we're going to be able to do it when it's hard? Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. And maybe this slogan, don't be frivolous, is more important than ever. Let's just say it is. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that. I was looking at a two of toothpaste. And it said, it made some superlative claim. And I thought, how do they know that? You know, the best of, better than all. And I thought probably because everybody does that, there's just no way of proving it or disproving it. I don't know. Maybe it actually is the best. <laughs> but, But So I'm going to say, we live in a time where don't-be-frivolous is more important than it's ever been, okay? Disprove that. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that because we have used our intelligence and our creativity and the precious Earth itself to have so many easy and cheap and titillating, seductive ways to waste time. I mean, it's amazing, really, when you think about it, and how how addictive things can be. That when you finish, when I finish, if I like, if I spend, which I've only done a couple times, full disclosure, <laughs> TikTok, you know, so. <laughs> somebody sends something, a little clip. I mean, I don't even really know what it was is, but I opened up the click, and it's like sixty seconds of like what? And then it immediately goes into another, sixty seconds of a different what? And it's just, and I realize, oh, this never ends. This never ends. And it's like with each one, there's a little mm, a little mm, you're getting a little mm, right? But it's like. You know, after all, I was like, "I am wasted." (laughs) That is a verifiable waste of time. (laughs) Oh, lordy! Time swiftly passes by, and opportunities are lost. What opportunities? To practice, to cultivate, and be kind. To learn and grow, to develop, to help someone, to be generous, to be larger. Judith says, frivolity comes across as a lighthearted and innocent, but it's not really. It's not real openness, but a form of aggression towards your own Buddha nature. Very interesting. Frivolity is a form of aggression towards your own Buddha nature. Keeping things on the surface level helps you prevent any discovery and arising that might rock the boat. It seems more comfortable to float about in the shallows of life than to pursue its depths. But since Buddha nature, uh, it's, since the power of Buddha nature is that it keeps wanting to arise, suppressing that instinct takes work. Another interesting statement. To maintain your narrow field of comfort, you have to keep pushing it down. And Buddha nature, in this sense, I think, is not just, you know, bodhicitta but I think very often, and more universally, I think of it as arising as unrest, dis-ease, discontent, anxiety. And not just of everyday things, but deep, existential. What the hell is going on? What is this? Streams. And when that arises, it is that, that's, in a sense, our Buddha-nature calling to attend to something, to address something, to resolve something. <clears throat> and so when we deny that, ignore it within ourselves, then it's, you know, much easier, perhaps inevitable, that we're going to deny it and ignore it and belittle it in others. And so our anger, our hatred, our bias, harsh judgment towards others we could think of as at heart, directing all of those harsh thoughts and emotions towards that person's original nature, towards their their enlightened nature. How else could that arise except from our own lack of faith or respect in that within ourselves? It's like feeling impoverished. We externalize that impoverishment. Isn't that what we see all the time? Feeling rage, we externalize that rage. Feeling unworthy, we we externalize, project that unworthiness onto others. So then if we look at it in that way, it makes sense why having faith in oneself is so important. If we don't have faith in ourselves, how can we have faith in others? If we don't build confidence, if we don't develop all of these enlightened qualities, and how can we see them in others? Particularly when they're making it hard to see them. Another uh, translation of this was, don't be like an open book. And that can seem kind of counter to what we might think. You know? To be open, accepting, trusting, to not hide. But what this is pointing to is that when it's about self-aggrandizement, when it's self- Clinging when it's egoistic, you know, that when we're being open or sharing, but it's really just about perpetuating our own attachments, our own insecurities, grasping. You know, think about how the teachings, particularly in the Zen tradition, the teachings talk about, you know, if you give too much, if you say too much, then you ruin. You know, if the parent is too giving, too, Jisho talked about this, too, you know, accommodating to the child, then kind of ruin the child because the child has to experience some limitations, some adversity, right? So that we can learn how to hold that and how to begin to work with that and manage that and realize we don't get everything we want. And that's okay. Can we be okay with that? Can we find our way, not just to being okay with that, but into being whole, complete, that is not dependent on getting? And so it made me think of a a month-long resident many years ago who was here on January on break. She was in college. And she came for a month and and left after a week. It's too much. She didn't didn't want to finish it. And a couple months later, she sent us an article, rather long article, that she had written for her school paper, her college paper, about her really profound experience at a Zen monastery. (laughs) I thought, well, that's just interesting on all kinds of levels. And then the last, to not expect applause, a personal favorite. I could just say, say no more. Jesus says, examine your whole relationship to approval and recognition, even fame. The idea is not that recognition in itself is a bad thing, or that we should not encourage or recognize others. And this is an important point. The problem arises when we expect our actions to be rewarded. Expecting them to be rewarded becomes a motive, an an aspiration, an intention, the the reason for doing the action. And that becomes just an ongoing kind of never-ending loop. And so, of course, to acknowledge each other, to be encouraging, and so on, can be very important. It's a way of giving. But when our primary motivation is to be rewarded, that will always lead to disappointment. Bodhicitta is, is in a sense, the greatest good, an aspiration for the greatest good, for ourselves and others in everything. Raising bodhicitta, aspiring to enlighten our minds, to free ourselves, to bring forth great compassion, is both so that our lives become precious, blessed, and so that we understand now how precious and blessed every person's life is. And we want to do what we can to bring that out. But what we're doing, the actual good of it, can get lost if we're seeking recognition and not getting it. And so think about training. to study the self in serving a meal, preparing a meal, cleaning up after a meal, striking a bell, attending a teacher, to let go, to know what is arising, and to let go so that we can serve someone, to know how to be within ourselves and to be in the many, to merge, to be in union, in the midst of sitting, a service, a bow. Because if we're motivated by recognition, I mean, the same thing that seems to be is that there's never enough. It's never enough. We never get enough. We will always want more. Because what we're doing is dependent on getting that. And if we're not getting more, then we can even begin to see that recognition as criticism. If I get recognition for this, but then I don't get it for that, what did I do wrong? What happened? What's wrong? Did I disappoint you? Or are you angry with me? Don't you care anymore? She says another problem with the hunt for approval is that it can, to, is that to gain approval, we have to buy into the dominant values of the society around us. It's an interesting point. If what gets approval is getting rich, that's what you strive for. If it's beauty, that's what you obsess about. If it's power, that's what you have to focus on. The desperation for outer rewards goes hand in hand with an increasing sense of inner poverty because it's never enough. the more we look outward and depend on others for our own fulfillment, the greater the inner poverty is what she's saying. Why? Because others hold the key. We're giving others the power to give us what we seek. And so to be able to receive praise, we shouldn't deny that when it comes to us. But don't get drunk on it. It's a gift. It's not you. <clears throat> to receive blame, we should listen. There's almost certainly some truth in it. We can learn something, but don't despair. It's not you. like Kelpgun says, don't expect to gain credentials from your spiritual accomplishments. So I would say, be, be aware when you find yourself putting your Zen practice into your CV. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, I can imagine where that might be applicable. So, so be it. But be alert. Be alert to the effect of that. Uh, not just the motivation of it, but what the effect of that is. Davis said, when I work for others' sake no reason can there be for boasting or amazement for it's just when i feed it's just as when i feed myself i don't expect to be rewarded i mean in a sense isn't this really what everybody should be doing not necessarily buddhist practice but caring giving taking responsibility wanting to not do harm I mean, these are not qualities, virtues, views that are unique to Buddhism. Pretty universal. But hard to practice, it seems. Damn hard to practice. Even when we're trying and have the wealth of the three treasures. When we don't even think about trying, to practice mindfulness, to bring forth compassion, to gain insight, to understand the teachings. For a Dharma practitioner, these, in a sense, are just a matter of course. This is what we're here to do. So don't expect applause. Yeah. It's good, you know. It's good to be encouraged. Be encouraged. But also remember, it's, It's a matter of course. It's what we hope will be happening when we practice well. And so, in a way, it's marvelous because life is being transformed and at the same time, not a big deal. It's not special in the sense that it is something special from the outside. It's not the most amazing gift you or a meal that's ever been made for you, but you're never going to get it again. It's, it's, you bring it with you everywhere you go. It reverses the flows of rivers, levels, mountains, cools, raging fires, and it's just our basic nature. And tuning in, tuning to, living that. From a Buddhist perspective, we can think of it as a gift, in a sense, a, an honor to be able to do this together with each other, to have traveled this ongo together, and at the same time, it's really perhaps in essence what every single living person wants, if we listen closely. Shanti Davis said, "The goal of every act is happiness." In the deepest sense, may all beings be happy and know the source of their happiness. That doesn't just mean point to ephemeral, fleeting, transitory forms of happiness. Everybody knows how to get those. This is and know the source of that happiness. So it runs all the way through. The goal of every action in in the Buddha Dharma is happiness itself, though even with great wealth, it's not so often found. So take your pleasure in the quality of others. Let them be a heartfelt joy for you. Let others be your inspiration. If we allow it, then that spring, that wellspring of inspiration is bottomless. Because people are pretty cool. Really. And the people who often think they have the least to offer, the least... To provide as an example, are often the most inspiring, the most courageous. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.